Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Good morning. Happy Monday. Michael here. Mark there. How are you, Mark? Well, Michael, you always ask me, and um, some days are better than others. I'm I'm quite, I'm not that happy today. (laughs) Do you want to talk about it, or will we do that while everyone else listens to it? Well, it's uh, pouring with rain outside, which we've established uh, generally makes me gloomy, and I have an outdoor show tonight, so I'm probably going to sort of have an unpleasant time. Anyway, we normally just say, oh, I'm fine. How are you? But I thought perhaps people would like sort of a a glimpse into reality there. It's really nice when someone says, how are you? And someone actually answers the question rather than just saying, I'm good. How are you? Um, So that's nice. We like that. It's a big move to answer by saying, crippled by feelings of inadequacy, Michael. But again, sometimes (laughs) truth is more valuable than uh, politeness. Truth is more valuable. But lest we just turn this into a therapy session, we do want to thank our Patreons. We've got some new Patreons this week, haven't we, Mark? Yes, well, I'm going to keep calling them Patrons, but it's one of those... Oh, yes, It's a bit like the aluminium-aluminium thing. We can all be friends about it. Uh, Our new Patrons (laughs) are... It's not your fault. It's very confusing the way it's done. Anyway, Ben and Victoria are the two uh, heroes who have boarded the Patreon ship. I'm going to say this week. So um, thank you to both Ben and Victoria. And we wish them a better Monday than everybody else. Yeah, we have set our stall out doing that now. So unfortunately, once more, we have to... So there's just two people walking around who are going to have a better Monday than everybody else listening to this. Two people having the best Monday, then 32 other patrons having like a really good Monday and everyone else just... And then a standard or bad Monday for everyone below <laughs> yes, that absolutely. line. Yeah. We're sorry to keep making these threats. We, we want everybody listening to have a, a nice Monday, but there's only one way of guaranteeing that. But a particularly good Monday today, for we do have the lovely Moss in Zeddy today. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to establish my territory because Michael can be a bit sort of undermining of me sometimes. And I just like to play my way in. Um, well, I actually have experience of that undermining because before <laughs> we started hitting record, he was taking the mickey out of my microphone. He was indeed, wasn't he? He, he uh, regarded he your microphone as being a bit frumpy looking compared with the yeah. microphone he possesses, which he claims. Well, <laughs> do you remember the phrase he used about his own microphone? Yeah, understated elegance, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mossin is a really brilliant man, and he has just released his paperback of his book, A Dutiful Boy, which is genuinely gorgeous. I read it all in one night, which was bad for me the next day, but I had a wonderful evening, really beautifully written as well. Yes, it is. I second that, and the book has made quite a bit of an impact already, I think, um, for reasons which will, I guess, become clear when we chat a little bit to Mossin. I'm going to stick my neck out and say that I think this was one of the it was one of the best ones that we've had. I found him extremely interesting and 
uh, again, a perspective we haven't heard a lot of before. Yeah, so enjoy it in your ears and we'll see you on the other side. I'm Mark Watson, this is Michael Chakraverty, opposite me, and we are joined by Mosin Zeddy. Hello, Mosin. Hello. That was good, wasn't it? That was good. Really neat, efficient intro uh, by efficient me. Start. I thought you were going to ask me to say something else. So. I am going to ask you a question, yeah, <laughs> but, right. but I just wanted to establish my territory because Michael can be a bit sort of undermining of me sometimes, and I just like to play my way in. Well, I actually have experience with that undermining because before <laughs> we started hitting record, he was taking the mic out of my microphone. He was indeed, wasn't he? He regarded he your microphone as being a bit frumpy looking compared with the microphone he possesses, yeah. which he claims. <laughs> Do you remember the phrase he used about his own microphone? Yeah, understand elegance, I think it was. He claimed his own mic. He had bought a mic with understated elegance, yes. I was half tempted to do a Patsy Palmer and just close the laptop lid and walk off like she did on Good Morning Britain. Very good. One day we'll lose a guest, one day we'll lose one, and we'll put it out as a special edition and we won't mention that it's only four minutes long. People will think that they've had a downloading error or something. Back on topic, though, you tried to introduce the podcast, but Mark, this is why I normally have to start, because it doesn't go anywhere. I was going to ask the customary first question, which I now will ask. Mosin, how do you normally describe yourself to people? So... I try not to because it feels really arrogant, but I am a criminal barrister and recently the author of a memoir called A Dutiful Boy. I have actually written another book, which was called The Little Book of Insider Dealing, and it's a criminal text which three people read. Oh, yeah. But did they like it? Well, two of them were the authors, me and the co author. <laughs> and the other one was my mum, and I think she was lying. So I don't... <laughs> in general, you don't want the number of authors to outnumber the readers, really. Yeah, yeah well, they don't. Three. <laughs> I, know, I suppose, yeah. To be fair, yeah. though, Dutiful Boy has been a big success, surely. Like, everyone is loving that. Like, book. more than three readers, I heard. Yeah, I think actually, yeah, Dutiful Boy has been all right. So my second outing as an author has been slightly better than my first. And how has your lockdown been? Well, you were going to get married, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, uh, lockdown has been miserable. I'm not going to lie. I mean, look, you know, I have a job and a roof over my head, so I'm very lucky. But I hate being inside. My wedding was cancelled. And then the book was postponed. And then when it was published, it was published in lockdown, which sucks because you don't get to do any of the fun bits of publishing the book. I had the same experience. It's a weird, empty feeling when your book is, in yeah. inverted commas, launched and all that happens is a tweet, essentially. You have to pour your own crap wine into a glass. Yeah, and you're kind of sat in your living room. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I think more than that, like there was this book written years ago called Quiet and it was about introverts in an extroverted world. And I feel like somebody needs to write the opposite because I'm an extrovert in an introverted world and I really just want to get out. <laughs> I am very similar to you in that regard and without wanting to do down anybody who might be more of an introvert than me listening, I am starting to get tired of all these already there are opinion pieces saying oh do you sort of miss lockdown absolutely or not. did you sneakily enjoy it i've seen <laughs> half a dozen of those in the past week and i say that what i mean is i've seen the headlines on twitter and reacted <laughs> furiously without engaging at all yeah. which is how you use twitter <laughs> i completely understand some people's reasons for having enjoyed aspects of all this seclusion especially people who are anxious or you know find social life difficult but i mean bloody hell it's been enough of this hasn't it <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I'm sick of it. Like, I was with a mate the other day, and he was like, Oh, I think actually I'm quite happy for this to go on for quite a while. And it took everything not to hit him, actually. <laughs> I was just I've like, been punching no. people left, right, and centre when they say that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this business of being an extrovert is interesting, though. Have you always been sort of a gregarious person? Because obviously, you were growing up in an environment where, well, yeah. Can you talk a bit about. Um, Really well-worded question, that, isn't it, Martin? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Really easy to respond to as well. Perfectly articulated. Michael's catty today, but sometimes <laughs> listeners enjoy that. I had noticed. I nearly segued directly into the question about one's first brush with masculinity, but I thought you might like to do that. I, I do like that. You yeah, like to feel I like sort to of have important. structure. But I think it's an interesting question. Like, have you always been an extrovert as a personality type? I think that I was, at school, an extrovert trapped inside a quiet person's body. Mm. Mm. Unfortunately, school was complicated for me because... 
although I sound terribly middle class, I actually am from really working class background and I sounded exactly the same at school. And I really worked hard in a school where actually people didn't as much. So there were lots of reasons why I got bullied. So I found it easier not to speak. So I didn't speak very much. And then it was only when I got to university that I realized, actually, I quite like talking and (laughs) it's quite enjoyable. I could do more of this. And therefore became a barrister. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I guess it was always there somewhere, but it took a while to come out. A bit like my sexuality, actually. Well, I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, this feels like an open goal of a link, really. (laughs) We'll definitely come to that because I think it's really fascinating. But the first question we do ask everybody is what the first brushes with masculinity were. And when you first Mm. remember kind of realising that masculinity existed as a concept. Mm. Yeah, and when was that for you? Exactly, to the day, please. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, actually, it was around the time that Hit Me Baby One More Time by Britney Spears was out. So I probably could tell you (laughs) the month, at least. And that is exactly the sort of dating that Michael likes, by the way. <laughs> yeah. He likes everything to be indexed. A bit of diva yeah. dating we love. Yeah, good. Well, I was watching it on TV and I can't remember how old I was, but I was quite young. And it's an infectious song. I got up and I started dancing and I was just gyrating around our living room. And I was actually singing out loud as well. And I kind of turned around and my dad was standing at the door. Like my Pakistani Muslim father was standing at the door, mortified at this spectacle of his son gyrating to Britney Spears. And he said something and, and all he said was, don't ever do this again. Why? So as soon as you asked that question, my mind went there because he didn't say you're acting like a woman or you're not acting manly enough, but he said, don't ever do this again. And and I knew immediately what he meant by this. And it was a kind of like silent understanding between us. Under the umbrella of this was basically any non-traditionally masculine behaviour or performance or implied. Yeah, I don't know whether he was talking specifically about sexuality or just... Maybe you just thought you were a bad dancer? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how was the gyrating? How were your hips? To be honest, I danced in the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games. I was a backing dancer to Dizzy Rascal. Uh, so wait I a minute. Hang on a think. second. Why isn't this the thing you lead with? <laughs> we're going to fire our researcher. <laughs> Do you want to start the recording again? Yeah. Like, <laughs> intro with that. Hi, I'm Austin Zeddy. I'm a backing dancer to I'm Dizzy Rascal. I'm a backing Rascal. dancer to Dizzy Rascal. I don't yeah. think it would take Michael as long as it has taken you to mention that, if that was in Michael's CV. <laughs> That's incredible. Anyway, so I don't think it was the dancing. Not too many people have been a criminal barrister, but also backing dancers Dizzy Rascal in one lifetime. Well, there we go. That's why I wrote a book. (laughs) Were there any further conversations after that about that sort of thing that happened in your house? Or was it just an unspoken rule, I suppose, that you had to kind of toe a line? No, I think it's like when people ask me about growing up in a religious household, like, were you ever told it was wrong to be gay? No, no, it's never as overt as that. It was Mm. this kind of subtle understanding of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and where the line is. And so no, other than that one comment, we never really spoke about it. And do you think the attitude towards homosexuality was based on the religion or based more on the culture, I suppose? Were you going to ask the same question? I was going to ask the exact same question because I'm always interested. It's very difficult to disentangle one from the other, isn't it? But it's always interesting to know where these parameters, where these norms come from. Yeah, what I found really interesting when reading your book, the effect I was left with was the separation almost between the culture and the religion. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that you kind of culturally still see yourself as Muslim, like you follow some kind of cultural aspects of the religion, but you don't follow the religion itself. And so I'm kind of interested in terms of where you thought that homophobia, which is essentially what it was, or outdated perhaps views towards homosexuality. Yeah. Do you think that was a more religious-based thing or was it more to do with the kind of culture of Pakistan? Well, I think it's important to say at the outset that I grew up in London and London in the early 90s was... The UK was a homophobic place, right? Yeah. We had there was Section 28. There mm. was lots of other stuff that was going on. It was in the backdrop of Margaret Thatcher having just been in power. Yeah. So the first layer of homophobia came from the country that we were in. Yeah, 100%. Because I think a lot of the time people interview me and they're like, oh, so, 
you know, what was it like? Was it because you were Muslim? I'm like, well, hold on a second. If you think about the date and the time. <laughs> no, it's because I was in England. Yeah. <laughs> you lot were dealing with homophobia too. Yeah. But having said that, of course, there is an extra dynamic to it, which is around culture and faith. And I think the answer is it really depends on who you're talking to. Because for my parents, the answer would be different to some other people. Mm. So I think for my parents, it was a bit of column A, a bit of column B. Mm. I think what it really came down to was actually culture because they had a very firm idea of what my future would look like. I would marry a woman, I would, you know, move in next door, have kids, and then we'd all grow old together. And I think that me saying that I was gay just challenged their worldview, but also challenged their dreams, right? They had a very, actually a really romantically lovely idea of family. And I think that they'd never been shown an example of a different type of family. And so for them, they were like, okay, well, this means our version of family can no longer exist. Yeah. So I think that at the heart of it, in my case, it was challenging the notion of family for my parents. It's really interesting, isn't it? We've made leaps and bounds, obviously, to where we are currently doing a massive jump from the 90s to now. But we aren't fully there yet in terms of representation. No. And even responses from families people across the world, I suppose, the response is, oh, but the future I saw for you won't look the same now and you won't have the family or the children. And it's a really well-worn narrative, I suppose, because it's so entrenched, is the fact that gay people won't have families in the same way Mm. or trans people can't have families in the same way. And I think it's a really interesting observation that actually if representation and education was better in terms of knowing that everybody can have families no matter what they look like, I do wonder whether that would unpick quite a lot of the shame and stigma around coming out. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons to write the book, actually, Mm -hmm. was because I was tired of feeling ashamed. And I was tired of being told, okay, well, you're gay, that means that, well, you can't be with your family anymore, because you have to embrace the Western ideals and Western notions of things, and you have to leave everything else behind. And I remember I was on a train platform a couple of months ago, and I got a message on social media from somebody randomly. And it was a mother, a very religious mother, who was writing to me to say that she had thought that her son belonged in hell, and that reading the book, she wasn't actually a Muslim mother, but she was of faith. And reading the book made her see her own lived experience, but through somebody else's eyes. Mm. And she felt really bad for not having centered her son's experience and instead focusing on herself and, and on her faith. And it just, for me, it was, to be completely honest with you, I cried on the platform because I was so like, this is why I wrote this book for moments like this, so that few people could feel less alone and so that parents could see another version of family. I think also your book doesn't just centre on your experience. It's about you, obviously. It's a memoir. But the way you framed your parents was really respectful and also kind of curious in terms of understanding where they came from and why they did what they did. And I think it's probably bears saying that you have a good relationship, I believe, currently with your parents and they've come on leaps and bounds and the stuff that they've done and the, the work they put in to become supportive has been incredible. And I think that in itself is inspirational, seeing people go from a place of not accepting to almost promoting and saying we're proud and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, when people ask me about what the situation is with my parents now, the easiest way to put it is my fiance's name is Matthew, and they genuinely love Matthew more than they love me. And I think that means that I'm marrying the right person. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a sacrifice you've had to make to, uh, to get on side with your parents. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Put a better person in your place. Yes. Offer them an alternative son, but it, yeah, exactly. whatever works, I guess. Yeah. Do you think I'm... Um, I mean, this is a question which might sound... Um... Oh, strap him, Martin. He looks <laughs> uncomfortable. Oh, God. There's a question raised by things I've read that you've written. I mean, it has the potential to sound like an Islamophobic question, but I've asked similar questions of people who grew up in Christian and Jewish backgrounds and things. Sure. I find it very interesting what you've said about being, well, yeah, culturally Muslim, but detached from some of the actual rituals or articles of faith or, you know, some of the day-to-day mm. 
of Islam. Do you think that not just Islam, but religious conventions can modernise? And basically, do you think we can live in a world where people can still be Christians or Muslims, but accommodate gay people better than they have for generations? I'm sure I've read you saying that punishment for homosexuality was not an intrinsic part of Islam for a long time, for example. Yeah, so I'm not an expert on theology. And so I try not to focus too much on the theological answer. Mm. But there are academics who have argued that Islam and homosexuality, and actually Catholicism or Judaism and homosexuality, there's nothing irreconcilable about those two yeah, things. Yeah. I mean, by way of example, the word sodomy doesn't appear in the Quran. Yeah. And so people are like, well, how can you say it's illegal if it doesn't even appear in the religious text? Right. For me, I guess the point is that religion is a deeply personal thing. And I can't tell somebody what to believe or whether or not they have to accept homosexuality as part of their faith or not. Mm. What I can say is some of those people will have queer children. Yeah. And those children, like me, will be suicidal for the way they were born, unless they are supported and loved and cared for in the way that they should be. Yeah. And if we can't agree on religion, I would hope that the one thing we can agree on is that they don't want their kids to be suicidal. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think that any religion, in fact, would try and not want anybody to be suicidal. Yeah. But also there is space in religion for those things. I mean, actually, there are really vibrant queer communities of faith in this country and all, and all over the world. And I think religion does give people hope. And I think it gives people belonging. And I have a lot of respect for my family's faith. They're fasting at the moment. And they derive a lot from their faith. Absolutely. So I, I think it can be a force for good as well as problematic. So do I. And that's why I kind of remain hopeful that there's a way that religion can continue to animate people's lives and choices, but without excluding the lives and choices of other. We spoke to a gay Christian a couple of episodes ago. We, you know, I'm very interested in these kind of hinterlands between mm. the kind of button-down traditions of religion. And because, as you say, it is inevitable that lots of people belonging to faith or born into faith will also be queer. And now that we know that we live in that world, I'm really interested in what happens next. Yeah, I'm not a faith, but I see the values that people have in religion and the amount of meaning they can attach to it. And it genuinely does bring light and joy to so many people. Mm. And I think it is so fascinating to kind of think, how do we apply what needs to be applied to it and make sure people feel accepted and comfortable within the wider conversations around its history and its past, which can't also be ignored. Yeah. What violence has been enacted in its name, whether or not that could actually accurately be ascribed to it. You did write about conversion therapy. Yeah. It was a witch doctor, wasn't it, that came, yeah. which I thought was really powerful. And there's lots of conversations around it at the moment, considering the government having pledged to ban conversion therapy in the UK, but not quite acted on that in the many years since they said they were going to do so. Yeah, yeah. I know you talk about it in the book, but would you mind just giving a kind of an overview of, of what that experience was like for you? I came home a week after coming out to my dad, came home from the library, and I could tell something was up because my brother and my dad were and my mom were constantly like where are you where are you where are you and when I got home there was a man waiting in the living room and my dad told me that he wanted to speak to me so we went for a walk nearby and this man who was the witch doctor was saying you know your parents have told me that you've told them something recently do you want to tell me yourself and I was like, well I've, I've told them that I'm gay and he was like, who told you that you're gay? And I was like, well, nobody told me. I just know. You don't really get notified of it officially, No, do you? you didn't. And I was going to be like, well, I could give you some details, but I don't think you want to hear them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you might wish you hadn't asked the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But basically, he kept challenging me on the idea that I was gay. And then he said that he'd helped other people. And that really pissed me off mm. because I just thought, how dare you? By this point, I was in my mid-20s. I was already a lawyer. I was almost a lawyer. I kind of was really comfortable with who I was and nobody could tell me any different. But there were so many... I just imagined all these kids that are still being exploited today, by the way, that he was abusing, right? And, and exploiting the vulnerability of their parents who were desperate to try and quote-unquote save them. But nothing I said was landing with him. And it was really frustrating me. So eventually I just said, look, are you gay? And he was like, 
what? Excuse me? And I was like, what, are you gay? <laughs> Big move. Yeah, power move, yeah. And he was like, uh, well, uh, uh, uh. I was like, are you or not? I've answered your questions, now answer mine. So he was like, no, of course not. Like, how dare you even suggest it, blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, so then you don't know, do you? Like, for all you know, all of these people are lying to you because that's what their parents want to hear. And I'm not going to lie to you. You're wasting my time. At this point, he starts to wish he hadn't been called to see a barrister. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he called me the most stubborn young man he'd ever met. Someone that's excelled in debating that's in their mid-20s. Something is, else is, to add to the list as well. Back and down to the rascal, most stubborn person a witch doctor has ever met. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Quite a number yeah. of different accolades on your, on your mantelpiece. Accolades, yeah. exactly. God, I really should do that intro again. <laughs> but anyway, so then we went home and um, he held up this ointment and he wanted me to drink it. And I refused. And my dad said, please do it for me. And I said, Dad, you're the reason that I'm not going to do it. Because every day I drink this is yet another day where you think this is going to change. And it's not going to change. That's really brave with that one to be patronising. I mean, I think I'd have just probably drunk it. <laughs> well, yeah, so that's the thing, right, is five years earlier, I think this is one of the things I say in the article, five years earlier, I would have downed the damn thing, you know, I would have just been like clambering for it. And I think that's why I feel so strongly about conversion therapy, because it's such a, it's such an abuse. Yeah. If there was some people, a team of people going around the country, going into people's homes, and assaulting children, we would not stand for it. It would be on the front page of every newspaper. That's what these people are doing. And yet they're getting away with it. Yeah, I was astonished. Again, it's quite a cis privileged point of view but i did not understand the extent of conversion therapy that still goes on until the recent spate of news articles about it i was amazed by the notion of it yeah and by the presupposition that being gay is something you need to be cured of i mean it seems so very primitive yeah so you're right it's astonishing and that it's still seen as a thing that people turn to in hope that they can fix something there's so much to unpick in it and i think the more stories that can be shared about it is the most important thing because mm. the more people show the impact it can have on people, the more change it can bring. Absolutely. But also like making it unlawful, it sends a really important message. Yeah, the way yeah. that gay marriage sent a message of, okay, this is something we accept as a society. Saying from the outset, this is now illegal. It tells young people, actually, well, there's a reason why people are not allowed to do this, why it's unlawful. Yeah, in the same way that people aren't legally allowed to practice other forms of medicine which are out and out harmful. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. have been medically discredited. Although, again, as you say, it can take years before that changes as well. Mm. And like you say, Martin, it's scary to think, I mean, you were lucky because you were confident and felt able to fight your corner. Absolutely. But there are so many people for whom that happens not in their 20s, when they're in their teens yeah. or even younger than that, for whom they don't feel able to fight. Mm. It's one of the reasons we do the podcast, I suppose you could say. To share stories. we're aware that those stories need telling. It's what people need to hear them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the gay stuff's really interesting, Martin, but it's not all you are, so let's talk about something else. I mean, boring, boring, what? gay, gay, gay. You, you might not even be gay if that guy was right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. True. Oh, well, not... I'm still testing the theory. <laughs> Fair play. Yep, keep doing the groundwork. <laughs> you mentioned earlier growing up in a working-class background, a working-class area, which yeah. I think is really interesting in terms of masculinity, in terms of the archetypal macho man is a kind of a working class, he's a worker, he's tough and he's all these sorts of things. You mentioned that you were bullied when you were growing up at school. Yeah. Did that have relation to class? You mentioned your voice and things like that. Yeah, I suppose partly it was class just because I sounded ridiculous. <laughs> like, you know, like, imagine sounding like this in a proper East London comprehensive. Yeah, were you in Walthamstow? That's where I live now. Yeah. 
Are you live in Walthamstow? I do, yeah. Oh no, you're one of those. <laughs> <laughs> one of the assholes that have led to it being gentrified. Yeah, which means I can't afford to buy my house that I grew up in. <laughs> yeah, that's right, mate. That's me. <laughs> so class was part of it, as I said, because I sounded like this. But a lot of it was also to do with the idea of masculinity, of what it meant to be a boy in East London, right? Mm. So mm. For, you said macho man, but for me, it was rude boy or bad man. Like right, it was yeah. slang. It was kind of the way you walk, what you are interested in, what you're not interested in, the music you listen to. Like there was all this, there was expectations around a certain way of being. And I tried to conform but I did a really bad job. Like hearing me speak slang, it's ridiculous. You know, it just sounds so stupid. Can you give us a couple of lines, Martin? God, no, 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 no. You can't put a man on the spot like that. I also can't think of any slang that I could ask him to say. So I mean, <laughs> this is like when you asked Nikesh Shukla to rap. Yeah, Nikesh didn't want to rap. <laughs> he nearly hid under the table. I still hope that he'll send me a voice note in the future. <laughs> he might. You have to keep it. Put it on the Patreon. <laughs> but yeah, I take your point. You're aware that you can't fake it in those situations. So thinking of like a rude boy or a bad man, what did they look like? What was that vision of masculinity? What kind of attributes well i think it was so do you remember craig david had those kind of lines on his beard they weren't it wasn't a beard it was just like a ridiculous looking line and so that yeah, was, couldn't even call it a beard really it, it was so that was part of it i think at some point when garage music which i really like actually yeah. was kicking off i mean it's funny now because now of course the working class aesthetic has been co-opted by luxury brands yeah so that they can basically commoditize poor people and the poor aesthetic but yeah. try to sell then, their aesthetic back to them exactly yeah so so back then you know, kappa joggy bottoms and stuff were not cool. They were just what you could afford and that's what you wore. And so that was part of it. And so, yeah, I, I dressed the part. In fact, the funny thing about it is that I dressed the part all the way to university to begin with because I didn't know how else to dress. And then I got mistaken for being a drug dealer in uni Freshers Week. And wow. so then I was like, okay, I need to go to Gap and buy some polo shirts. Yeah, that's, <laughs> being mistaken for a drug dealer in Freshers Week is it the first sign that you might have mistaken the dress code at the institution you've come to. <laughs> yes. But I like that you went for polo shirts. That's very Oxbridge, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, because there was, so I write about this, right? On Facebook, which was new at the time, there was this Facebook group that said, wearing your collars down is for poor people. God. And I genuinely didn't know whether to wear them up so that people couldn't tell I was poor or wear them down because I shouldn't be lying. Like, it was really complicated. The honesty of the polo neck. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, up, down, up, down. So much emotionally invested in the collar of your shirt. Very difficult. <laughs> yeah. I really, I mean, it wasn't a class thing in my case, but I remember that early university panic about what to... I remember a, a panicky visit to Edinburgh Woolen Mill, which I don't think that would ever happen again in my life. <laughs> Until you're 94. <laughs> it's because I'd seen, again, I'd seen someone else in Freshers Week wearing something that, like, some sort of awful... I don't know what you'd even call it really, but like a lumberjack shirt and I thought that this must be what you do at Cambridge then. I'm such an old man that sounds lovely now <laughs> oh, Ed yeah. like Edinburgh Woolen Mill oh, lovely navy cardigan you know I wish <laughs> yeah. I'd kept hold of all that stuff for my 40s actually yeah. <laughs> it is interesting that like you kind of change what you wear to try and fit in with people I mean I went through like a an emo phase when I was younger and I was wearing fingerless gloves which are the most impractical thing in the entire world what's the point your fingers are the bits that get cold but like you, yeah, either wear gloves or don't eh? well yeah but you try and dress in a certain way to try and attach yourself to the group of people that you want to to be but I think there's also qualities that you aspire to like what qualities did a I feel weird saying rude boy I've said that so many times now because I feel like boy has an eye and that makes me uncomfortable the problem is that we're talking about kids who grow up with no opportunities yeah. right they've got you know, they grow up in one of the richest cities in the world and yet they might as well be in a village in the middle of nowhere because they are treated as if they are criminals they don't have the same access to extracurricular activities or educational opportunities or economic opportunities as, as most other kids and so there, it doesn't seem like there's very much to aspire to other than this one very particular way of being. Mm. And so, for example, some of my relatives, I won't go into too many of the details, but some of my relatives were drug dealers. So at one point in life, I thought, wow, I want to drive a Range Rover. I'm going to be a drug dealer. And you think it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually deeply sad that that's what 
we as a society allow to happen under our watch with these kids. Absolutely. It doesn't really sound ridiculous. It's inevitable that kids want, you have to aspire to something and you will attach value to whatever you can see, which is beyond the life that you're currently offered, as you say. And mm. in the case yeah. of the kids you're talking about, that life is so incredibly constrained yeah. that it's, it's very easy to see how almost anything becomes attractive as a thing to belong to mm. and want. When you were younger, were there people that you admired, that you looked up to and thought, I want to be like them? I know you've mentioned the, perhaps not the drug dealer thing that you want to mention, <laughs> but like, were there any positive models of masculinity that you looked at? And that could be to do with sexuality or race or yeah. class or anything. But who did you look up to? So I think that the person that I looked up to the most was my uncle, my yeah. uncle Thai. It's a gorgeous relationship in the book, actually, a really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I get quite emotional talking about him because he passed away from cancer a couple of years ago, but he was just the most wonderful man. He was a generation below my mum and a generation above me, and he was my mum's younger brother, and he loved George Michael. He was probably the only straight man that does, but he loves George Michael. I like George Michael, just to reassure you. Oh, do you? Also, yeah. so do I, yeah. Yeah, but you're not entirely straight, Michael. Well, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all a bit? All right, maybe there's more than one straight man that likes George Michael, but uh, he was Yeah, it was more than the music for me, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, so he used to like dance around our living room. It kind of defied all of these notions I had of what it meant to be a good Pakistani. Mm. And he would just like make me sit on the sofa with my brother and he would just be like dancing away. And he'd be like, I was in the club the other night and these are the moves I was pulling. And he was like, you know, throwing moves out. This is one of these cool uncles that because they're younger than your mum, they like that thing mm. of slipping into the generation gap between you and your parent. Everyone could exactly. do with a sort of surprisingly young uncle like that. I'm interested mostly in his hips, if, if you could just describe how... how... <laughs> Did his hips lie, in the words of Shakira? And was this <laughs> no. before or after the Britney experience? Or, or did his hips have integrity? <laughs> his, his hips never lied. Never. Not once. In a serious note, was this before or after the Britney incident? This was afterwards. Wow, okay. So, well, I guess it was a bit before, a bit after, but it was because, yeah. you know, obviously he was my uncle, so he was always around. But I just got to watch him going through his late teens and his 20s as I was in my, I must have been seven or eight. Yeah. It was so different to how my parents had said I should behave. Yeah. But also he just taught me to be kind. It was so important to him to try and do right by other people and like you know we'd be walking down the street and I remember this one really vivid experience where we were walking down the street and this woman across the road who was carrying loads of bags she was clearly struggling and he said come on son because he used to call me son as his nickname and we crossed over and we just helped this woman to her door and I don't know how long the walk was because I was too young but it was quite far mm. and like I totally forgotten that experience until a few months ago when I saw a woman struggling with her bags and I crossed over and I helped her home because because I thought of him and you know you don't realize sometimes I love that by the way the way that small acts of kindness whisper to you through the years like that and embed themselves in your instincts oh, I that's, think that's a lovely way of putting it yeah one of my most strongly held beliefs is that kindness reverberates in that way. So it's wonderful to hear an actual mm. example of it. Yeah. So yeah, he was probably the most important role model I had. And he sounded like he was quite instrumental in your coming out and feeling comfortable with who you were. And Yeah, he was. I told my mum, his sister, and she, for a few days, couldn't bring herself to tell him. But she was clearly not herself. So he was stressing out because he thought, ironically, he thought she had cancer and he was really worried about her. And he kept calling me and saying, and I was at uni and he said, look, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And I was like, I can't tell you. It has to be mum. As soon as he found out, he jumped in the car and came to Oxford to see me. And he just told me that he loved me exactly as I was and didn't want me to change and that he was really proud of me and proud of the man I was becoming. And I just wish that every queer kid, every kid could have an uncle like that. Mm, yeah. Do you think how he is and who he was has informed who you are now and in what ways? Yeah, absolutely. He used to be the person I would call. Whenever there was a mistake or a problem or something good or I had a question, it's just like, I call him up and say, oh, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think of this? And now that he's not here anymore, 
I find myself, I guess, rehearsing what I think the conversation would look like. Yeah. So if I'm in a particular situation, I think, okay, well, what would Uncle Dai say to me? What would he tell me to do? And so I think inevitably it does inform the way that I conduct myself because I'm thinking he would be here to tell me what to do. And now he's not. So I have to figure out what he would say. Yeah. And it's about wanting to be that person for others yourself, mm. isn't it? It's about, that's yeah. one of the best things you can aspire to do with your life, I think, is to be that person that lodges in someone's head, even if you're not physically there anymore, to yeah. be a, a sort of compass for someone. It's a really moving idea, I think. And the idea of being a compass, I mean, you've done, you've created that support group, I believe, for LGBTQ Muslim families. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because I think that's really important in terms of creating space for that kindness and for those conversations and also to work through the hard parts as well. Yeah, so what I realised was that there was lots or there were some organisations out there for queer Muslims, but there was nothing for to support families. And mm -hmm. I think that if we're going to change the way that families deal with homophobia is to provide them with support and provide them with a safe space in which they can talk about how shit it is, because that's what my parents needed, right? I took my mum to this South Asian event and a few years before we set up the group, and all the parents were talking about how wonderful their kids were and how much they celebrated uh, the fact that they were now gay. And the problem, I mean, it was, it was lovely to see, but it was, it was the opposite of what my mum needed. My mum needed somebody else who she could say, I really hate this and I find it really hard. Absolutely. In the same way that parents always need or frequently need that more than they need everyone to be bragging about how great stuff is. Yeah. And it's really lovely to hear someone think about the other people in the situation, because when you come out to somebody, it's not just you that has to go through something you're kind of coming to the end of what you're going through and they're beginning exactly. what they're starting. Especially and, given the, the background, all of the baggage. That, and that's where change yeah. comes. Change comes from the people who have it happen to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think the thing is, with me coming out, it was lonely for a long time, but as soon as I started telling people, it quickly stopped being lonely. And yeah. there was this whole community and now support operations. I'm on the board of Stonewall and that's designed to help support people, queer people in this country. But if you're a parent, and you're religious, and you're from a community where it's shameful, when the coming out happens to you, and it does happen to you, as you've said, Michael, you can't turn to anybody, you can't tell your siblings or your family or your parents or your friends, because all of those people hold the same worldview you do. So who's there to challenge yeah. it? Yeah. And there is always that competitiveness, of course, there yeah. is that sense that you're seeing you talk about this, and it reminded me of my own mother that there is, you know, part of the impact on your parent is this thing of like, well, shit, I must have done something wrong, or I'm not celebrating my son's queerness like these other mums are. There are so many layers of it for a parent, as you say. Oh, my mum didn't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> she does now. It's an often overlooked thing. I think the idea of a support network for people dealing with what feels like a seismic change to their life stroke worldview is a really nice one important thing. There are far more resources to support gay people than there are to help the people around them understand it. Yeah, exactly. So that's where the idea came from. It's a really lovely idea. Do you have any kind of examples of change that it's made? So the group's only met twice. And that's because I didn't want to set up a charity myself because it's a lot of work. And also because I didn't want it to be about me. Like, you know, I didn't want it to be like, oh, look, everybody, I'm doing this thing. Like, I just wanted to get on with helping people. I didn't want it to be this platform. So I worked with an organisation called the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. And they are a fantastic charity. But they don't have all that much resource. So they have lots of other things they need to do. So I think what I'm going to do is try and find some more funding for it so it can become a proper regular thing. But from the two or three times it did meet, I can't really convey just how powerful it was seeing parents be able to talk to each other. Yeah. Because these parents are scared, these parents are ashamed, and these parents have no vocabulary with which to articulate how they're feeling. And they can't even do it with their kids because their kids are saying, well, you need to get used to this. And you know, I tried to do that as well. Sometimes it was tough love. 
but then you get them coming together and suddenly they're bonding over making jokes about future son-in-laws or future daughter-in-laws and like who they're going to not be able to invite to the wedding and they're taking all these really actually quite sad things but turning them into lightheartedness because they can do that in this safe space yeah so i guess even in those two three meetings that we had I could see that it was proving transformative. And then there was this WhatsApp group that was set up with some of them. So I think it, hopefully it's helped. Yeah, I'm sure it has helped. It sounds great. Something else that popped into my head from the book was your experience of race within the queer community. Because I think yeah. often we talk about how when you come out, you have this community of people who are there for you. And, and that's yeah. wonderful. But that community itself is deeply problematic in many different ways, yeah. often internally against one another. But there is a racial aspect to it, which I think is really fascinating and isn't really spoken about enough. And I really appreciated reading a bit about that from your perspective. And I was wondering if you could give us any examples, I suppose, of some of the challenges you face within the gay community with regard to race. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know why. And obviously, I have no statistics to back it up. Always good when someone starts a sentence like that. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Exactly. There is no evidence for all of that. So <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say I've got away with that in court. Um, <laughs> <laughs> say yeah, you might have to be a bit more forensic than this <laughs> i sense that the prejudice that exists in the wider population becomes more acute in the gay community and i'm talking specifically about the gay white male community mm -hmm. and i don't know why i wonder whether partly it's because as a queer person you've gone through feelings of otherness and not feeling like you belong and so maybe that makes them think that they have free license to do and say whatever comes to their minds, yeah. however offensive it might be. We've talked about this before. I would have always imagined that that experience of your own otherness would enable you to have greater empathy towards do other oppressed... people in that situation, but it often doesn't play out like that. We know that from the world. No, exactly. The oppressed find it much easier to then oppress. Uh, it does make sense. With learned behaviour, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, it's weird. It was. It surprised me. Before joining Stonewall, I was on the board of Pride in London, and I won't go into that too much because yeah. there's a lot going on there, but I found that deeply problematic, and that's why I left. And I was surprised because I expected quit people in London to totally get race but it was such a naive worldview of mine mm. I guess the thing is is it's easy to talk about the racism which there is a lot of I guess the more nuanced examples are things like I went on a date once and this guy said oh you don't look Pakistani and I was like have you been to Pakistan? <laughs> oh, no, no. So, uh, so what do you mean? And I kind of said it in quite a jokey way but I was trying to get to like and he was like oh I just mean that you know like uh and I was like do you want me to fill that sentence in? What you're saying is I don't look like a taxi driver or a shopkeeper. Mm. And I know it sounds really aggressive to do that on a date, but I was just like, ah, like you don't even get it. Yeah, how did they go after that? Let's just say that isn't the person that I'm marrying. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been an amazing twist. Yeah. There is also a fetishization of it as well, I think. Definitely. The same with any person of colour that you talk to about this issue who is relatively conscious. There are like a whole host of examples. I had a guy in a professional context come up to me and say, I've actually been seconded to our Dubai office, which is why we've not met before. I love brown boys. Can I take you for dinner? Like, oh. and you're just like, oh my God, I should have reported him to HR. I wish I had now. But there's all this stuff that happens. I guess the thing about it is instead of it being about victimhood, it is about educating people, right? So it's about saying, what is it that is so problematic about those sorts of comments? And why do you need to challenge them? Yeah, my next question was, how do we change that? I mean, it's up to you, Martin, entirely to fix this, by the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the next 30 seconds. Yeah, you're not the yeah. first person to expect that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I do often wonder, like, what steps there are. Well, we know representation works. We know being able to see people, like, for example, on a poster of Pride, we expect a white cisgendered, able-bodied man. That's kind of what you see as the face of pride. It's changing slowly, but representation does breed change. Yeah. But I also don't think that's the only way we can do it. And 
Yeah, I don't have an answer, but I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are in terms of how do we change it? Is it just calling it out whenever it happens? But that's exhausting. I mean, I think that's part of it. And people have to decide for themselves whether they want to call things out as they happen or not. And, you know, everyone picks their battles. I'm the same. I think it would be helped by ceasing to centre the white gay male experience, Mm -hmm. which is what we have historically done as a community. That Stonewall film is a really good example of oh, doing that, right? Like yeah. where the first rock was thrown by, I think, a trans woman. And instead in the film, they have I haven't watched the film. but Yeah, it's Jeremy. Oh, it's the guy who's in Mamma Mia. He plays like a young one of the, yeah, one right. of the men. Jeremy something. So the story's been... They literally whitewashed it. So yeah. the original Stonewall, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, because Martin literally works for the organisation. But the original Stonewall was an uprising predominantly led by queer people of colour uh-huh. and particularly trans women of colour. And in this film, it was like a group of white boys and maybe one black or brown one, uh-huh. I think. And that's what we mean by centering the game. Literally, yeah. yeah. It's a prime yeah. example. I think what's interesting about it is that class is also ignored so much of the time. And actually, class is so important to all of this. Mm. So you've got all these companies whose head of diversity is a privately educated white gay male. Yeah, yeah. Because they think that's diverse enough. Exactly. And I think what I would really like to move away from is this idea of just because you happen to tick one box that necessarily makes you diverse and means that you understand everything else about everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess moving towards a more sophisticated view of identity where intersectionality is centered. So intersectionality being like when you are more than one identity. So for example, I'm Mm. brown and from a working class background and gay. So yeah, so it's just it's less box ticking more kind of thinking about it more carefully. Yeah, And hopefully more amplification of those voices, because I think there are cisgendered white gay men who have platforms, but it would be nice if that was used, I suppose, to amplify voices of those who don't have those platforms yet. There's so much work to be done. Yeah, but I think that applies a lot. That's why I mentioned class. It applies to race too, right? Yeah. When you have commentators talking about race, most of them are privately educated. I'm really pleased that people are talking about race, right? But you then have the right wing saying, well, you went to Eton. So what are you complaining about? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, oh my God. Because actually, in this country, if you are black or brown, you are disproportionately more likely also to be poor. So to talk about one without the other is complicated. And yeah. so I guess I would quite like to see a shift towards just more nuance when we talk about identity. And I think often when we talk about race, people only really think about black or brown people and Romani people, for example, just don't get a look in or there's so many other, mm. so much else. I mean, we've, we've really opened a box here. So I'm just going to gently put the lid back well, on. Well, this is the thing. Once you start <laughs> caring about this stuff, you have to care about a lot of it. And that, that is why people take shortcuts, I suppose. I do feel like we could talk forever, Martin, but um, I am going to guide us to our final question, sure. which we always ask. Yeah. You shouldn't say that to a barrister, probably. What shouldn't I say? You shouldn't say that we could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> Professionally has that ability at the very least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get a filibuster from Martin today. <laughs> but yes, you're right. We have come to the, um, the traditional final question. Final question yeah, final which question. is, if you were to be building a man from scratch yeah. in order for them to best function in today's society, for it to be the dream society that we've kind of talked about a little bit, what would you embed within them? I haven't even mentioned Build-A-Bear this time. I'm going to go without Build-A-Bear this time. We'll cut the analogy. Yeah. I get the concept. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank you for offering to, you know, explain it via Build-A-Bear. Yeah, yeah. But he's incredibly, he's managed to infer it without Build-A-Bear <laughs> yeah, coming exactly. into it. With the plain words you used. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm the first guest to kind of take issue with this question, and I don't want to do that. You aren't, but I love that. Do okay, it, fine. go. Question us, go, go, go. You know, because sex is one thing, gender is another, right? Mm. But I guess that what you guys are trying to get at is in this society, if I had a son, for example, how would I raise him? And I think I would hope to raise my child, regardless of gender, in the same way. So these three answers 
I would probably give for any, any for person anything. I was trying to... Yeah. So after dismantling gender, what you would then after do... Disma- exactly. After dismantling the patriarchy and gender... Yeah. We would, uh... <laughs> He's knocking the bears off the shelves here. There's <laughs> <laughs> a bull in a china shop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the three things, and they're inspired by my Uncle Thai, because those are the things that he taught me to focus on. Integrity, generosity, and kindness. And I'm not just saying kindness because it's in your title of your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, but it is inescapable, I think, if you care about... Yeah, you know, there's a reason why it's in the title. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that they all... Oh, Ooh, a bit of drama here for Ooh. the listeners. Does that mean I got the answer right? Yeah, that's right. It's the first time we've had that. <laughs> we, we've never heard the uh, the klaxon before. You've won. You Martin. win a prize, yeah. Yeah, what do I win? <laughs> you win Michael's fridge freezer. I'm going to send you my bank details. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, so integrity, generosity and kindness. I'm really interested in generosity. Yeah, so, well, actually, I think you guys might want to look at this afterwards. So Tony Parsons, who's a writer, he wrote for GQ. Mm, and one year, I, I don't even remember which year it was, he wrote something called a, a manifesto at the beginning of the year, pun intended with the word man. And he had all these different lines, really short kind of snippets of advice. And one of them was be generous to the point of absurdity. And there is something in that line that I absolutely adore. It stayed with me. I think that there is so much to be gained by being generous to the point of absurdity. I love that. And I think that it feeds into the other two things, in particular, being generous with your integrity, but particularly being generous with your kindness. Mm. So, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and also just, I guess, being able to acknowledge the privileges that you have. And I'm talking about me because I try not to, yeah, I try not to tell other people how to behave. I focus instead on how I can be a better version of myself. So how can I be kinder and more generous and, and conduct myself with integrity? Well, that's lovely. That's a really nice thought. It's pleasing when the three choices sort of dovetail in, and in that as way. as you heard, you won the prize. Absolutely. I got the right answer. So uh, This is the <laughs> ultimate answer, so we'll have to stop asking that question. Yeah, mic drop. Before we go, we do like to ask you to plug things, which we will do. But also, would you like to redo your intro just quickly as a backing dancer of Dizzy Rascal and the most stubborn person the witch doctor okay, ever met? Okay. I think this is unprecedented is it for someone to finish with an intro <laughs> yeah, okay. starting with one. So, Mossin, how do you introduce yourself? Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> Primarily, I'm famous for being a backing dancer to Dizzy Rascal in the 2012 <laughs> Olympic Games. Dizzy and I go way back, or they might not remember me. And secondly, for famously being called the most stubborn man a witch doctor had ever met. At last, the priorities are straight. <laughs> Thank you so much, Martin. Honestly, it's been genuinely fascinating. Yeah, and just your, let people know where they can find you on and your, social media. Yeah, and your book as well, which and is brilliant. The book, so forth. the book is called A Dutiful Boy. And I don't remember my social media handles. I think it's mossinzeddy.ldn, something like that. If they Google you, they'll find you. Well, if they can spell it. I must say, the book I finished in a night. I stayed up really late. I read it in one night. It's genuinely beautiful and heartbreaking and gorgeous. So definitely do go and buy it. Thank you. I would definitely recommend it. Thank you very much. It's got a lovely cover as well. You look very adorable on the front. And you love to sleep as well. So that is an I do. I do yeah. love to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Martin. Yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. No, thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Thank yeah. you. Good luck. Bye-bye. The enormous uh, intellect and wit of Mossin Zeddy there. Enjoyed that. Yes, really lovely conversation and really fascinating. Although his mic was an unsatisfactory colour. Yeah, you're very kind of, you will really beat people up over their microphone choices. I didn't realise we were being recorded while I was beating him up about his Microsoft. Microsoft? About his micro. Oh my God, I'm so... <laughs> I did... Don't worry, Michael, this is all good content. This is good content. <laughs> 
sometimes I think we're too flawless as broadcasters, so it's nice to just rein it in a bit, that perfection. I can't get my words out today. Yeah, you had problems with his microphone style choice, but his microphone did work well. And basically, if we if a guest's audio holds up for the whole hour, that's really all we want in life. We've had so many headaches with that stuff. And uh, on that note, um, we were halfway through recording our next guest um, when we had so many mic- microphone issues that we had to stop. So we don't actually technically know whether we're going to have time to record them before next week. We're just being honest with you guys. We're being honest, open and vulnerable. We just don't know who's going to be here next week. Yes, it could be. We hope it will be someone by the name of Lane Rogers, who, as Michael says, we had sort of half a chat with and we were beset by cross-Atlantic tech issues and it, so it was a, a first in mankind history i was gonna say actually it's not quite a first i was gonna say it's the first time we've had a chat interrupted in that way but then there was that time jackie cox we lost her altogether because couldn't get back in the apartment <laughs> yeah she did leave she did completely leave the podcast that's true but we can't now give you a clip of next week's episode because we just don't know who it'll be with or whether it will be just us talking for half an hour into your ears so yeah if we haven't finished the chat with lane rogers it could be quite literally anyone on planet earth so there you go what a tease that <laughs> what a tease but in the meantime please do continue to keep in touch with us at mankind podcast on social media that's twitter and Instagram and I think Facebook, although I think Facebook's for old people now, so I'm not really sure. I mean, by old people you mean us, though. I mean, I mean yeah. you, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I also, I'm not on Facebook, so either it's for even older people than me, or yeah, there are reasons to be sort of wary of Facebook, I think, but we do check we just Perhaps we're just not in the zeitgeist, because I think Instagram is technically Facebook, but get in touch with us anyway, or you can email us at mankindpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's the oldest uh, of them all, actually, email, and yet we do still, everyone does still use that reassuringly. That's, and we, those are always <laughs> getting read, actually, so I think the the actual inbox is the way to contact us. The group. inbox is the best way to go, yes. And we had some other tweets, actually. Somebody mentioned David's episode a couple of weeks ago, David Atherton's, who said they loved uh, the highlighting of the power of vulnerability and shame within the queer community, and that thinking about their first brush with masculinity was fascinating, which is great, because we came up with that question, so that's that means that we're great, I, I guess, I suppose by does, extraction. Yes. You are what you do right. on this earth. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm completely with it today, Michael, because I was about to start reading another lovely comment, and it's, it is the same one, to be perfectly fair. I was just about to read Vulnerability, Shame, <laughs> and Driving Force in the Queer Community, and I thought... Well, why don't you read the message from lovely Beth? Beth says, uh, really nice to hear. So this uh, relates to a, an old episode, I suppose you could say. Uh, Nathaniel Curtis talking on mankind about how rejections are merely a change in direction feels very relevant for me right now in my desperate job hunting state well i hope beth uh that your job hunt has come to a satisfactory conclusion because this was tweeted well about 10 days ago and in fact on my daughter's birthday i note so i hope that for my daughter's birthday you got a new job beth i don't know how if that's how it works but sometimes the universe <laughs> just throws gifts in all directions doesn't it and Patreons will know that you had a bit of a crisis over on Patreon about whether your daughter was your friend or not. And if you'd like to see similar crises, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward stroke Mankind Podcast. We're quite consistent with our usernames everywhere, really. Yeah, there's no there's no messing about it. It's always Mankind Podcast. That was an artfully achieved segue, I think, Michael. Thank you. And the three, uh, the three price bands that we have on there, everyone gets the same content because we're all about equality. But the three price bands are Mankind, which is £5, Mankind Dirt, which is £7, and Mankind Dist, which is £10. And we drop little extra bits from all the interviews, uh, different videos each week. And um, Mark and I just write little messages every so often when we feel the we need. We do, actually. We, we do that quite often. I was just going to add, as a footnote, there is, and it quite literally is a footnote, there, is, um, there was also a tweet about what Ben was saying uh, about 
pointing his feet out. Do you remember that? Um, oh, Ben Hurst last week. Yeah, uh, someone called David says, totally understand the foot thing. I avoid and judge men walking with knees and feet outward. I make unfair assumptions. So there you go, we've made someone. Well, my feet go outwards. I was actually doing a photo shoot last week and I was told to keep bringing my toes in because I kept, I was doing it wrong, apparently. Who knew? So we've challenged someone's <laughs> worldview, hopefully, with our podcast, which we like to do. So on that um, nicely satisfying conclusion, we'll see you next week, hopefully, perhaps, maybe. See you there, whatever happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.